Hello and welcome to episode 269 of the Waters Wave Then podcast. I'm your host, Wei Shen, and I've got Tony with me here today, who is down at, down, up, up at Raleigh? Well, you know, down in Raleigh for where I normally live, but yes, on okay, vacation. down in Raleigh, on vacation. That's how much I care about this podcast. I am on my vacation doing this intro, so. <laughs> Tell us a bit about what you've been doing out there. Uh, we've been shooting a lot of pool. Me and my brother and my father are very competitive, and but I'm the best pool player. We shot a lot of guns. I am very not good at shooting guns accurately. Um, Was it target or like clean? Yeah, so you go into like um, a range. no, not quite. Yeah, yeah, at a range, and they would like give you all these kind of weapons. Well. My uncle, I won't say his name, but he brings out a lot of different guns. And so we were just like firing off. And I am very not good at that. So, yeah, I will never be a sniper. Anyway, so there was that. And I've just been checking out different, you know, restaurants, bars, brewery in Raleigh. You know, Raleigh's a great, it's a great city. It's It's nothing amazing, but it's also... Awesome. Plus, it's home, no? I mean, well, home to your parents now. What's that? It's home. It's where your parents are. Well, I don't expect other people to care about where my parents live, so, you know. Yeah, but anyway. Where do your parents live in Malaysia? In KL, which is home to me. Well, so, yeah. 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 <laughs> <laughs> Whatever. So, anyway. Anyway, we have a guest for this week. Why don't you tell us uh, who it is and what you guys talk about? I thoroughly enjoyed this conversation. It was um, Steve Rubinow, um, former uh, CIO CTO of um, New York Stock Exchange. And now he's at DePaul University as an Azure professor. And he has one of the best LinkedIn feeds to follow. So. Like, if you don't listen to this podcast, go and follow him because he's always bringing up interesting topics. But it was one of my favorite uh, conversations I've had in a long time. And so, yeah, uh, I think that everybody that everybody that cares about generative AI, artificial intelligence, and not only that, but also the state of the educational system, mm. I think you'll dig it. Okay, then let's get to it. On the ammo. All right, and now I'm joined uh, by with uh, Steve Rubinow. Uh, Steve was the former CTO and then CIO at uh, the New York Stock Exchange for a little more than a decade. Um, he's held other uh, CIO hats in his in his day. And currently, he's a lecturer at the Jarvis Center of Computing and Digital Media at DePaul University. Uh, Steve, thanks so much for joining us. Yeah, glad to be here. Thanks. And you might not know this even, but I, I, my career is in part indebted to you. Um, I started at Waters Technology in October of 2009, right as the financial markets were crumbling, and uh, the, the person that hired me, the editor-in-chief that hired me at the time, he was let go 
a new editor came in, a guy named uh, Victor Anderson, and you know, South African guy and intimidating dude, but good dude. Uh, I, I'd never met him, I didn't know him, and he calls me up as our first conversation. And he's like, Tony, I want to start getting you know the leaders in technology in the capital markets on the cover of our magazine. Uh, so go out and get me three of the biggest names out there. You know, for the next three months. Like, oh, is that all? I just started. I didn't have sources. You know, I was like, I was just learning the business really. And uh, I reached out to New York Stock Exchange and asked if uh, Steve could be on the cover and for profile. And you were gracious uh, and and uh, did it. And uh, you know, it hopefully turned out into a good story. Hopefully, you appreciate the story. But all these years later, we're finally reconnecting. I have uh, I have that very issue not at my fingertips, but I have it handy. <laughs> very good. And for those that don't know, uh, Steve, I highly recommend. Uh, following his uh, LinkedIn, uh, following him on LinkedIn, um, his feed, you have a lot of thought-provoking, you you post a lot of interesting articles and topics um, about education, um, about AI, about um, just the nature of work, all different things. So it was also a big reason why I wanted to have you on the podcast. And I think to start off with, uh, one of your favorite topics, as I said, is AI and Right now, we are in the hype cycle of large language models and generative AI. As somebody that was a CIO CTO of a major exchange, if you were talking to you know your colleagues, you know other CIOs, CTOs, how would you explain this kind of seemingly su- uh, sudden shift um, in AI, this jump in AI? that you know, kind of really started when GPT-3 and chat GPT came right. out um, la- at the end of last year. GPT-3 came out in 2020, I think, but chat GPT came out at the end of last year. How, when you have these kind of things that burst onto a scene, and I'm sure board members are asking about, everybody wants to talk about it on earnings calls. We're seeing it all the time. Uh, we're hearing about it all the time from the data providers and from the exchanges and from the big four kind of uh, cloud providers. How do you assess something like this as a CTO, CIO, and prepare your team, but also do it cautiously, I guess? Well, the the, the key word is cautiously there. And, and I've said uh, many times before uh, to people I work with and people that work on my teams, uh, our job as technologists is to manage risk, not to mm-hmm. avoid it. And of course, managing is a different thing for different people. But uh, what you don't want to do is be too conservative and then let uh, the early adopters pass you by and then you have to catch up with them. On the other hand, as we all know in technology, if you jump on every new technology, you'll, you'll be exhausted of pursuing new technologies, most of which won't live up to the promise or the hype that was advertised. And so it's that balance you have to strike. And it's also one of the implications, as you know, if you work in a regulated industry like stock exchange or financial services company, uh, making mistakes is is more serious than if you work in a non-regulated industry. And it depends which application you might want to launch as your initial application. You certainly don't want to start with your bread and butter. That might be bold, but a little bit too risky. Sure. Uh, but you don't want to do it on, on an application that is uh, of no interest to anybody because maybe it's a it's a learning experience. But people will say, "Yeah, so what?" So, um, uh, but so, but I think you know, and I've been trying very hard because I've been through so many technology cycles and I've been through so many 
this technology changes everything. You know, yeah. how many times have we heard that? Nothing will ever be the same again until the next one. And so, but this one struck me as different. So number one, uh, and by the way, and, and not to go down memory lane, but in the last AI uh, excitement of last century, and I always pause when I say last century, it sounds like, you know, the ancient history. Uh, I was very actively involved in that. Of course, different technologies we were using. Uh, I, I used it uh, uh, in my employer. I wrote a chapter in a book about uh, the use of it uh, and how it worked out for us. And so I was very much enamored with the general category of things called AI, which is a very, very broad description. But the latest stuff that you're talking about, this is why it captured my attention. And I'm, as they say, I'm trying very hard to balance the hype versus like not getting too carried away but not being too much yeah yeah we'll just wait for it to die down and see what it really is and here are the attributes number one is the fact that it got such rapid adoption and adoption means you know downloads it doesn't mean people everybody that downloaded is using every minute of the day but it got uh, you know, 100 million downloads. I think the last number I saw on the web is uh, 150, 170 million. Now it's decreased a little bit. Uh, and some people are saying, you see, the, the bloom is off the rose. I, I hate to use one data point to define a trend, but okay, numbers are numbers. And um, so that's number one, rapid adoption. Number two, as I like to remind people, it's connected via the internet to a network of 5 billion people. We haven't had too many technologies that have that network waiting for them to interact with. Number three, um, uh, it's a little bit mysterious. And mysterious the way, and this is what we all say about these uh, generative AI models and large language, mo large language models, is nobody can tell you exactly how they get the answers. They can show you the mechanism by which the foundation is laid to get them, but we don't know exactly why the answers that come out come out the way they do. And to some people, they point fingers and you see, couldn't get it right. And some people say, wow. And then they ascribe emerging properties to it and all this sort of stuff, which makes it, you know, a little bit more uh, mystical and fantastic. And, and that, that's, that captures people's imagination too. But we're only, if we talk about the end of November as a release, what are we, seven or eight months into this cycle? Yeah. Seven or eight months. And most corporations, based on everything that I've read, have forays into the technology. I think they think they need to. It might be small, might be big. We don't know. Uh, there are so many different players coming on the scene. So many different startups uh, getting funded, you know, at the drop of a hat because all they have to do is have a little bit of expertise and, and the germ of a good idea. And I have not. And then the other thing that I think is kind of telling is that people are falling all over themselves to describe this with analogies. And I have I don't remember that happening before. And and you know, I you you've read, I put a list, it's like some people say it's it's like electricity, it's like the invention of fire, steam engines, locomotives, uh, you know, yep. uh, tractors, on a, and and one person most recently said the microwave oven. I don't remember people falling all over themselves to come up with analogies to describe it. So to me that makes it a little bit different. So Every enterprising technologist uh, for whom for who, uh, for their company where technology makes a difference, which is most companies, uh, they need to get they need to understand what they're dealing with here. And then everyone's going to have a different plan and different approach to doing it. And the pace at which they do it, their appetite for risk, the the, the amount of risk that their company is willing to bear, uh, and then constantly monitoring the environment to see what other people are doing. Uh, because they said, if you if you take a wait and see attitude. You can fall behind. I mean, you, you can catch up, but you can fall behind. There's a plus and a minus for being a later adopter. Uh, but uh, I would advise people to pursue it. Just make sure that you do it with, you know, a clear head and, and a risk management profile. And as I always point out to people, if things go south in your application, whatever going south means, 
please be prepared for with a mitigation strategy as opposed to, I never thought this could happen. Now what do we do? That's not yeah. a good risk management profile. Yeah, the, the I didn't think it could happen is never a good excuse when it comes to technology. But it's, it's also the funny thing is like, you know, even at, at, at our company here at uh, InfoPro Digital, um, the, who owns, you know, water technology, risk.net and stuff like that. You know, the, the higher ups are always like, what are what are ways that we can use chat GPT and stuff like that? And, and fair enough that, you know, my reporters, myself, you know, I will use it here and there to kind of get some answers and stuff like that. But if you type in. Um, who is Anthony Malakian? And and because we're all ego egomaniacal maniacs here, right? when you're a reporter anyway, uh, you, you you definitely go and do this. Who's Anthony Malakian at Warriors Technology? It says that I graduated from Cornell University, and I wish it that was true. I might not be a journalist if I graduated from Cornell, and I might have a higher paying job today. Um, but it was I graduated from Plattsburgh State. So the hallucinations that, you know, the, the, this is what they call the term is, you know, um, generative AI kind of making right. stuff up whole cloth, just hallucinations. Um, it's 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 a useful tool right now to maybe start a search, maybe start, you know, some sort of exploration, but everything you have to back it up. And that's the thing is you can't rely on on what's being produced. And I don't know that people that don't deal in technology fully grasp and appreciate that they just want to how can we make this work for us kind of well and and so to your point i did exactly what you did you know it's like when the when the first search engines came up what what is it the average individual do you do a vanity search you want to see what's on the web about me because who knows more about me than me and so uh i I did the same thing and half of what approximately half of what it came back was yeah this is exactly who i am and half of it was um now, I don't want to say outlandish, but it was like, yeah, right years, wrong job, right job, wrong school. Uh, and and, and uh, it's like, oh, and uh, uh, oh, it gave me awards that don't exist. I I was happy that it gave me those awards, but they don't exist. And so I should be nominated. <laughs> yeah, that's right. It's, exactly. So I could tell the difference. And this you raise a very important point. And I this has been true of modeling my entire career. I don't care if it's a large language model or a statistical model or uh, 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 models in between. The best use of these tools for critical situations, and we'll talk about slightly less critical situations in a second, is an expert using the model to make themselves more productive when the expert is the so-called human in the loop and they can't assess whether the output they get needs more scrutiny, looks pretty reasonable, and I can pass it along or some, something else. And uh, and there aren't a ton of experts in the world. You know, it's if, if, if talent is a bell-shaped curve, uh, the experts are on the right side of the curve. It's a smaller part of the curve. Most of the world, I, I, even though they might think of themselves as experts, they may not be discerning or smart enough in certain uh, disciplines to tell the difference between a, 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 maybe a major error, but a slight error. And especially if you're under time pressure, if you're under budget pressure and you got to get results, uh, you might be a little bit too forgiving. Now, research has shown, and and by the way, every time I'm going to quote research as we're talking, these are preprints, these are preliminary things. Nobody's done exhaustive research because how ex- exhaustive can your research be in eight months? But uh, two telling studies that I've seen, when you compare search engine results and LLM results, the people that look at them, even though the content is the same, will give a higher degree of credibility that this comes out of the large language model because it's nicely packaged and because... 
uh, it's not, uh, again, there's a little bit of an air of mystery around it, so you give it the benefit of the doubt. Same thing is true for coders. Uh, when they're writing code, they ascribe a greater level of security to code that came out of ChatGPT or its equivalent um, than it did if they were doing it the old-fashioned way. And it wasn't any more secure, they just felt it was more secure. So we, we have to be careful. Now, having said that, let's go to something that's a little and probably more up your alley. Um, like if 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 I want to write a story, let's say I want to write a, a creative piece of fiction. Uh, there's no wrong or right there. Uh, it's just the you assess the quality of it. And this is where you start to read the stories of people that write marketing copy or ad copy. And so some you know the headlines say, well, I could replace you with a piece of software that does this. Yeah, it's not as good as you are, but boy, it's 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 good enough and it's a lot faster and it's a lot cheaper. And who's to say it's wrong? It's it's not wrong. It's you know it's in the eye of the beholder whether it's good enough or not. And that's uh, that's a different use where uh, it's going to get more um, acceptance than where the numbers have to be right or the rulings have to be right or the the decisions have to be right. Otherwise, you've got a problem. Yeah, it's it's an interesting conundrum that that you face. So it's it's almost two things. So you talk about that. You know, do you give do you ascribe more credit to uh, an LLM versus um, uh, just a regular search? And and that's an important distinction there in that a chatbot. It it feels like it's speaking to you. That's the whole premise of a right. chatbot, right? It's 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 conversational. So you think it's an expert talking to you as opposed to a search result. Here are right. some links to that you got to do a little bit more digging, but and well, it's human and, nature to want to just be given the information, have it spoken to you, versus I actually have to do a little more digging. Yeah, you know, Tony, there's there's two groups of people, and I've seen studies on physicians, and I've seen studies on people who write code. And they tend to fall into two groups. Uh, group one is what I would call the experts, and they use tools like this, and the results come out and they say, I could have, uh, these are the same results I would have done, it just helped me do it faster. Good, a productivity tool for an expert, that's wonderful. And then there's a much larger group of people who are further down the bell curve, so to speak, and they're not experts or not as expert. And when they see the results from this and said, you know what, that didn't occur to me, I just learned something. And that, so there's two groups of people this is going to benefit. The experts are going to say, okay, I, I know when it's hallucinating and I know to dispute the results. The people in the middle of the curve are going to say, you know what? Uh, it looks pretty good to me. Let, let, I don't know how I can scrutinize it. And now you know, someone else has come out with a piece of software that says, if you're not sure that chatbot A is giving you correct results, we just produced a chatbot B to check chatbot A's results. And I'm not really sure why you would check, you would trust chatbot B is more than chatbot A, but I know people are trying to, okay, it's a double check, great. Yeah. And, and if, if two pieces of software agree, maybe it's right, I'm not sure. But no, it's, um, like, it's like going yeah. down a Reddit rabbit hole and be like, oh, I, I clearly have cancer from this one thing that I read. You know, it's like, I remember I, I literally was just having a conversation that I had to check my yearly check-in with the physician. And I was asking her about, I wanted information on this um, one thing that you know, that she was potentially thinking about prescribing. I was like, I wanted to read about it. And she's like, sure, I'll give you, I'll send you the information. Don't read about, don't go down a rabbit hole on the internet of it because right. people present it as they're an expert. And it's like, you're just going to come up with all, here's the actual research material. And that's the thing is, these things can be used as excellent productivity enhancers. Um, they can't be used. Who knows? Maybe the day comes, but I don't think I. I people think I think that the, the the problem is because it just kind of came out of nowhere for everybody. In that, if you weren't following the, the field of AI, this seemed to happen overnight. 
It didn't. Right. This has been slow development since right. the 40s, 50s, 60s, since Alan Turing, right? You know, these right. these are steady developments over the course of the last century, really, right. um, that we're seeing, and the results of which we we now have these chatbots that we've never seen before. But yes, you have really in the way that you've been using Google your whole time. That it's just making suggestions for weird search or going down. It's just evolution. It just seems like it happened all of a sudden, so now we have to jump on it. And so that's where the caution, I think, has to come in, right? Well, yes, and, you know, to, to an earlier point you raised about people wanting to take results and hoping that they're ready to publish, uh, I learned uh, a long time ago that uh, us humans are uh, cognitive misers, uh, and it's an evolutionary thing. It's not anyone's fault or a problem like that, meaning we like to conserve brain cycles when we can and so if we get a piece of information that looks pretty plausible to us we're more than comfortable than maybe we should be sometimes passing it along because it conserves our cycles which is why you know if we see something in social media and we say you know what that looks i think that's pretty good and i'm not going to fact check it i'll pass it along because it looks pretty good and if i pass it along I'm conserving my brain cycles because someone else did the thinking for me. Uh, and, you know, it happens more than we'd like to think. And in a, in a small way, this is what's going on here. It's like if it looks plausible and it's going to save me time. And uh, you know what? I think I, I, it must be, I think it's pretty good and I'm going to pass it along. And people will keep doing that, of course, until they hit a speed bump and they find out uh, they, they did it too uh, hastily, in which case then they'll start to double check their work. But everyone will learn through experience. It's an interesting thing. You know, so from my own experience like you know because obviously in media circles this is you know generative ai something that we talk about a lot but it's i i, I try and tell people this is nothing new I, I used to be a sports reporter at a newspaper called the journal news um which is just you know it used to cover rockland duchess putnam and westchester counties which are the suburbs of new york city basically and we had a huge huge the like the the circulation was about 150,000 when I was there, but that was down even from previous. Now it's it's a minuscule amount. And they used to have a big sports department and they used to cover local sports like crazy. Um, and there were about 20 reporters that would just go out to all different schools covering events. And then I I fortunately had left long before this started to happen, but um, what you had was coaches going into a website, putting in stats. So you know, Steve Rubenow went two for five uh, with two doubles, knocked in five runs. The team won six to two. And then we would write a short little what's called like an agate kind of thing. We just write up a short little just blurb about who are the stars of these local games. And it was useless work. It wasn't it was it it, it was meant for AI to take over. Right. And sure enough. It did, and and generative AI started to produce. You put the stats in with the names, and it could spew out exactly what I was typing. And in theory, what was supposed to happen was it was going to allow me, the reporter, to spend more time doing deep dive interviews with with star players from across the. That didn't happen. What happened is, it's that paper. They just started laying off people and being like, "Hey, we can just use AI for this." I have to imagine as a lecturer now, as, as a professor at a, at DePaul, you're getting a lot of questions from from students that are perhaps worried about, and maybe even family members that are worried about, you know, what does this hold for my future? I'm an optimist, 
but I think there's going to be speed bumps in a long way. But how do you view yeah. it? Yeah, so uh, it's it's a very good question. And and again, the, the way before we were talking about generative AI, this is what I would tell people I work with, students. You need to understand the value you provide to an employer because that's why they pay you. And when a new piece of technology or comes along, uh, ask yourself if you're still providing the same value. Now, if your value is... I take this piece here and I take this piece here and I take this piece here and I put it in one document. Uh, yeah, somebody needed to do that, but to your point, uh, you can automate that very easily. Yep. If you get a bunch of information uh, and, and as a bright human, you add some value to it above the capacity of any piece of software we know, and then you pass it along and that value is recognized, you're in good shape. If someone says to you, you know what, um, you didn't seem to add much value to this, and I could I could do what you did with a piece of software. Yes, and maybe instead of 100% of you, it's like 95% of you, but 95% of you for near for near uh, no cost and done it in a few seconds, 95% is pretty good. And by the way, the value you provide is not a constant. You have to constantly be reevaluating yourself. And you say, you don't want to rest on your laurels because you know what have you done for me lately is a pretty good question, especially now. So I think that's that's what a lot of people have to ask themselves and students have to ask themselves too. And I always tell students, look, uh, people talk, and I really believe in this, the, the 100 year lifetime, we have to be thinking about that, 60 year careers, uh, and because of you know advances in healthcare and all those sorts of things, and people will work longer because either they have to financially or because they want to because they feel they they love what they do, and so it's very unlikely that you're going to have exactly the same job and exactly the same career for 60 years. So the question is, you know, keep your wits about you, uh, survey the landscape. You can't, and we all talk about the jobs that AI is going to produce that we can't even define yet. Well, it's hard to think about what those are. You can use your imagination. But you have to be looking ahead around the next corner to the extent that you can and see where your career might take you. Uh, and hopefully it's a fruitful place as opposed to a dead end. And and I, I uh, earlier, I think, in, in our um, when we were corresponding with each other, you asked what advice I give uh, students. And I, I'll tell you, uh, I attended an, um, uh, virtually an AI conference that was sponsored by the United Nations a few weeks ago called AI for Good. Really great content, really great speakers. Uh, the only problem was live streamed at Switzerland time, so I was watching it at two o'clock in the morning when you were probably up. Yeah, so, I was up. You were asleep as opposed you were. to our, Yeah, we have of different hours. You were. So they they one of they they asked one of the speakers, uh, a famous uh, a technologist for many years, uh, what would you advise high school students and, and in terms of careers because the landscape's changing so rapidly. And his response was. The phrase we've heard so many times, follow your passion, follow your passion. You know, arts, sciences, music, whatever it is, follow your passion. She says, but don't go into coding because coding is not going to be a great profession of the future, which is kind of a downer. But um, but I would expand upon what he said because I think follow your passion is a little bit too limiting. And I, there's the Japanese con concept of igakai, I, I always pronounce it incorrectly, which is it's multifaceted. It says, yes, follow your passion, but... Whatever your passion is, be really good at it. Uh, hope somebody pays you for it because that's kind of important. And hopefully it's something that the world needs as opposed to who cares. Uh, and if you can find something that combines all those things together, then I think it's a good path. Will it be the same answer every time you ask the question and will it be the same answer five years from now? Probably not, but I think those are good things to keep in mind because then you can feel fulfilled and you can feel you're pursuing things that are gonna be fruitful and that you're gonna be compensated for, which is necessary. And the, the, in your own little way, you'll make the world a better place. But if you're not satisfying those, then you have to ask yourself, and by the way, Tony, this came up 
years ago when when the same students used to ask me, uh, I, I think all jobs are going to be outsourced to India. Uh, does it make sense for me to pursue a technology career in the United States? And I gave them kind of the same answer. I said, not all jobs are going to go. I, I guarantee, I, how can I guarantee it? I said, I'm pretty sure they're not. I said, are you really good at what you do? If you're really good at what you do, you will have a job. If you're if you're very average at your best, you may want to think about your options. And I think this is going to be the same it's true with this technology. People that are in the middle of the talent curve, and, and if you've seen the surveys uh, about AI when they ask the average American, you get the um, response, I'm pretty sure this is going to have a profound effect on people's jobs, just not mine. Because yeah. I'm, I'm irreplaceable, and you know, it's like uh, the, the the math doesn't add up when you say that. So you have to take a, a self-critical look and see what prospects you have for the future. We also hear stories about people saying uh, this knowledge work, and and this is another you know dimension of this problem. I remind people in the because the generative AI is focused on the knowledge worker. There's a billion knowledge workers in the world, a hundred million of them in the United States, and given that our workforce is 160 million, that's most of the workforce. And so uh, you have to ask yourself, you know, what what does the future hold for me? Because it's going to have an impact. And um, and what how is this going to play? Or as we again, we see in some stories because I know that they 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 make good stories, uh, uh, media stories. You know what? I I'm giving up on knowledge work. I'm gonna I'm gonna become a plumber or I'm gonna become an electrician because the robots are not coming for those jobs. It's like, okay, people make choices, but it's good to be thinking broadly and see what the future uh, what the future prospects might be. Don't get me wrong, if I had to do over again, plumber, electrician, actually I was an electrician apprentice. And then once, they, once I had to go crawling underneath houses and stuff like that and have spiders around me, I was like, nope, <laughs> nope, I'm better uh, just typing and writing. Um, it, it's, I, I think that, Again, because I'm an optimist, so that AI is going to produce new jobs, is going to create, you know, things that we can't think about. You know, I I wrote to you and I said, you know, I mean, I I'm a conservative, I, I I lean to the right, but I really believe that some point down the line that this could lead to, you know, a four day work week. It could lead to universal basic income because of productivity and efficiency gains created through AI. I don't know if that's going to happen in my lifetime, but somewhere down the line. The, the thing that I think is the worrisome thing is is what I like to call donkey work. And it's important, like, when you graduate, you you start out in any profession just doing your junior analyst, your, right. you know, whatever. You start right. doing just simple tasks, and you watch how others ahead of you do their jobs. And so you're doing the simple tasks, but you're getting to watch other people that are experts do bigger things and then they bring you in on a project and slowly you're doing this this kind of stuff that needs to get done but that a robot can certainly do but you're learning how to do that while this it's that kind of i think that's where the awkward piece is going to come in is how do you kind of fill that kind of that entry level yeah a robot can do this stuff but it's important to be trained on job in something and people say it's oh it's going to be higher value it's like yeah, but you know, you're only going to be so much of an expert. I don't know. That's where I think the awkwardness comes in, in my mind. But I don't know. Maybe you see it differently. 
No, I, I agree with you. And one of the important elements in here is the time frame. And so this is, again, this is why I think about it more than other technologies. We're operating, uh, I think, under a compressed time frame. So markets, I believe that markets are eventually efficient. They eventually take all the known information and they reach an equilibrium point and everybody understands what it is and life goes on. So I don't, I'm not one of those existential risk guys that say, oh, oh the end is near Skynet and all the things that, you, that some people are talking about. I'm not that extreme. But uh, but the time frame makes me uncomfortable. Again, if if it's as compressed as one, one outcome could be. And so the question is, what happens to all the people that are caught in the turbulence? And I'll, I use the example that many, many people use. We don't have full self-driving vehicles yet, right? Uh, and but when we do, uh, and it's, you know, whether it's a, a few years or 10 years, I'm not really sure. But uh, we have millions of truck drivers in this country. And if if we have a, it, operating a truck within a city is still tricky. Operating a truck between cities on the internet and the interstates uh, not not as tricky. So if we had to displace a large number of truck drivers because the technology could do it better, faster, cheaper, uh, what happens to those people? We'd say in the long run, you know, it's the new jobs will be created and they'll find new jobs. But in the short run, it's not like a smooth straight line. It's bumpy, and and some glib people say, you know what, this is a great opportunity for those truck drivers to learn programming to write the software that replaced them. A coal and I miner said, alert. teach a coal miner how to program. Exactly. Okay. And I said, yeah. yeah that's... That assumes that we're set up to do that. That people have the aptitude and and willingness to do that. That they're good at it because if they learn how to do stuff and they're not very good at it, that's their employability is not as great. So, you know, these are important details. And that that concerns me. Again, in the long run, I agree with you. I think that society will be better off. I think we'll have uh, great uh, advances in productivity and, and improve the economy and all that sort of stuff. In the short run, I think it, it has the potential to be turbulent. I don't know that it will. And then the turbulence is going to affect a lot of people. And that that I'm trying to figure out how we minimize. We can't eliminate it. How can we minimize turbulence and still move at the speed we want to speed that we want to move? So two things, and I sent over topics to talk about. Uh, Steve responded like, "Great, how many days do we have to talk about this?" Because um, <laughs> it's like it's it, we could easily go on for forever. Uh -huh. Two things I do want to talk uh, quickly get get to uh, your thoughts on. Uh -huh. um, it's bit your it's been a while since uh, you've been at an exchange. I don't know how much you're paying attention to the exchange landscape, but one of the things you know for water technology and perhaps the listener listeners of this uh, podcast that they care about is the capital markets and shifts right. um and trends and on the exchange front we're seeing consolidation amongst exchanges we're seeing consolidation uh, where exchanges are moving beyond their listing listings businesses trying to diversify their revenue streams and become right. more um, provide more data, more analytics, um, become more integral parts of the kind of front to back um, trade lifecycle, whether that's post trade, you know, kind of being able to help for help their, you know, trading members handle post trade stuff more seamlessly, front end analytics, risk in the middle. What do you think, is, like looking at this kind of shift, is this a good thing? that exchanges are moving beyond just being simple marketplaces? Do you think it creates unnecessary complexity to the capital markets, or is it just kind of natural evolution from what you're seeing? I think it's a natural evolution, and, and I have, was, have been talking about this for a long time because I used to say that, um, unlike many other businesses, it's you can't drive demand in trading. It's like I can't 
I can't go to the traders that participated, uh, that are customers of an exchange and say, how can I get you to trade more so I can get more revenue? If I give you like frequent trader points, will you trade more? If I give you a coupon, a coupon you know, trade one, get one free, uh, can I come up with a new flavor of trade like, you know, cranberry pomegranate? I can't get you to trade more. So, but but I'd like to have a predictable stream of revenue. So it's very, and and as you know, at NYSE, we did this, we said, we 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 have a good technology. We use it internally. I bet that the, that our customers could benefit from it. Hey, let's let's see see what we can do and 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 provide that. So I'm not surprised that the exchanges are doing this and continue to do this as long as it's related to their core business. You know, I wouldn't expect uh, any of the exchanges to say, hey, you know, we've got a lot of sharp dressers at, at our exchange, so let's go into to clothing. I, I wouldn't expect to see that. But uh, but analytics and data and tech, other forms of technology, it makes perfect sense. And, and when you do it for yourself and you do it in an excellent fashion and you do it at scale, well, you know, th by the way, this is kind of a, a, a weak analogy to a cl cloud provider. Why would I take my stuff and, and give it to a cloud provider when I can do it myself? Because they have the scale and the expertise to maybe do it and, and they've demonstrated in, in a big way. And so I would expect the exchanges to say they can to do the same thing where they say, look, we have demonstrated expertise in this. We use it. We, we you know, we we um, eat our own dog food, so to speak. And uh, mm -hmm. and it works out really well. So why shouldn't our customers benefit from this? And 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 uh, and it's good for our business uh, and it's good for our customers. And so what more do you need? Yeah, no, it's funny because like Nizi was actually ahead of his time. I think in that when they launched Nizi Technologies, it was, I think it was a good idea. It just came along too early, almost like it was like I think now like exchanges are like, oh yeah, no, we we should have these kind of technological arms. Exchanges viewing themselves as technology companies is what it's become. Right. It was just kind of almost ahead of its time. Mm -hmm. Um. And but the thing I, I, I the thing I find, if you're just kind of talking about hypothetically and just kind of looking off in, into the ether, it's like. What becomes of your Google, Microsoft, IBM, AWS as they become, as everybody relies on their infrastructure or cloud? And Steve, that when we spoke, you know, 12, 13 years ago, however long it's been now, like we were talking about cloud and how you were, you were thinking about cloud before really the capital markets were and right. public cloud even. And now back then everybody was like no public cloud i'll never have sense of i'll never oh, have right. sense of client data and you say never and it's like yep well now just a decade later everybody's now moving their stuff um, right. to the public cloud um you know the disruption i don't think that people are thinking too far ahead because it was like you said ai is going to be disrupted to everyone just not me i think that some companies view big tech firms are going to be disruptive just not to what we do we're we're just irreplaceable until they say i think we can do what you do better and there's a nice revenue stream in there for us so tony you're absolutely right on what you're saying and you know andy grove many years ago said only the paranoid survive and i think a little bit of paranoia is a healthy thing because you're constantly looking over your shoulder to see who's coming as opposed to taking it easy, which you should never do, uh, because when you take it easy, that's when the things happen. You know, it's like, hey, I'm the 800 pound gorilla. Nothing will ever happen until it happens. So, I mean, let's take your any any of the major cloud providers or any of the major tech firms. If they have huge amounts of capital, they have huge amounts of knowledge and, and technical capabilities. And if they said, you know, here's a business 
uh, and with anything in financial services, it could be exchanges or anything, and said, you know what? We think we can make a lot of money on this. We think the margins are big. We can think we can shrink the margins and still make a ton of money. And we think we can do it better than the established players. We think we can reinvent the business. I would say, watch out because there, there's no barriers other than other than maybe regulatory barriers. If the government got in and said, you know what, uh, cloud provider, I, I get your business ambitions, but somehow as from a regulatory perspective, we're not comfortable with this, and I'm sure they'd reach an accommodation, but that, that would be one of the reasons. Otherwise, and, and maybe, I don't know if customers would prefer to have a neutral party as opposed to a behemoth service them, but I guess with the right business proposal and value proposition, they might go along with it. And, and look, we've seen it where um, in the content business, the big tech providers are competing with the studios, you know, in Hollywood. And that's, of course, in the news. And it's like, of course they can, because they have the they have the money and they have the talent and they can they can move a lot of stuff if they want to. And now in various uh, with various degrees of success, they've been ch chasing healthcare. They're looking They see there's lots of inefficiencies there and we know how to do stuff in, on a big scale. And it's a really worthwhile effort. We should chase that. Now, of course, the healthcare the healthcare market isn't as simple to crack as we all know, which is why success has been eluding most of them. But uh, you're absolutely right. Uh, there, it, uh, It's hard to think of a business if they set their mind to it and said, you know what? We we have the drive, we have the money, we, we have the talent. Uh, and we we desire to have that business that they wouldn't start pursuing it, and maybe they do it via a partnership, or maybe they would do wholesale replacement. So it's it's always important to think about, um, you know, who who might be coming after you. The established players are always in uh, front and center, but the people that are going to come out of left field, you got to keep an eye on them too. What is it the the three body problem by uh, Xi Jinping? Uh, I can't remember his last name, uh, but it's like it's the it's the unknown predator in the woods that you always got to be accountable, you know, always kind of have your eye on and and be wary of. No, it no, it exists. Don't don't go through the world just oh, it's never coming for me. Which brings me to the final question. Uh, you know, you're in academia now, so I. <laughs> I, I have a negative view of academia. I don't know. Like it's it's to be fair, I went to college for seven and a half years just to get a I, I make this joke a lot on the podcast, but a BS in journalism. And it was BS in many ways because I was just floating through school, just you know, having a good time. But obviously there are good things about, you know, a college degree, going to college, everything like that. But it's funny because like so many things that in the past you needed an expert for now like work around my house i go on to youtube look at a video here here's how to fix you know some sort of plumbing issue here's how to put a new shower head on here's how to you know put up a new shelf whatever and just watch videos or even cooking just be like all right you know i got this steak what's the best way to marinate and you just watch somebody it feels like with all the information that's out there you can really it's it's um in goodwill hunting is like you know you kind of realize that you spent one hundred sixty thousand dollars right. <laughs> when all you needed was just a library card. Right. Um, it feels like now there's just the information's out there. It's just a matter of going out there getting it. As somebody that's gone into academia as after being a technologist, using your wisdom and expertise and and years learned, that's certainly valuable. Like it's it's something that you know that. that they haven't figured out how to program your brain into a computer chip yet that can be kind of given away. Yeah. How do you kind of view the future of academia as technology makes information 
so much more readily available. You know, is it just that you have to have former experts that are now the professors as opposed to somebody that just becomes an academic and never kind of enters the field? I don't know. How do you view the future of academia when it comes well, to this stuff? You know, there's, of course, obviously, there's no simple answer, uh, but... Um, I wanted to. I want to know the definitive you answer. Like twenty-five right now. words or less. Yeah. <laughs> yes. and, and so it, it's it's uh, it's not uh, a secret at all that uh, uh, higher education is getting a lot of scrutiny now because uh, the demographics are not in the favor. The high school population is shrinking, not expanding, which means there's less uh, customers uh, for for educational services. So there's I think there's over four thousand colleges and universities in the United States. That's a that's a uh, a lot of places for people to go, and if there's less of them. Uh, everybody's going to compete for the same students uh, with a little bit more intensity. Uh, and, and, you know, college costs, uh, uh, education costs have gone up uh, higher than the rate of inflation. And so people say, you know, what's the real value of a degree? Now, you're t I I'm biased. I'm admittedly biased. I have six degrees from university. So I'm, I'm a believer in the model. But um, I also believe that it needs to, it, it, it will change in regards to some of these technologies because students have new tools available to them. But I think it, it's an important credential. Uh, and, I, and by the way, I, I'll go back to uh, when, when I got my master's in computer science and I was a pretty good programmer already, self-taught. You know? And so people said, why do you need to do that? So you really, not, you know how to program pretty well. And I said, because number one, I think I'll be exposed to other areas from other experts that I might not see in the workplace. And maybe I'm wrong, but I think that'll do that. And then thinking a little bit more broadly, if you think of a university and all the subject matter, there's a lot of stuff that you're going to intersect with that you would never do on the job. And it's like, well, and maybe that'll make me a smarter thinker. Maybe it might be a better thinker. Maybe it'll make me a more worldly thinker. Maybe it'll make me more sensitive to, to bigger issues than I'm used to. And I, it's hard to put a box around that, but I think that's an important thing too. What I think the universities are gonna be doing more and more, and there's a handful of universities that are already doing this, they, and I and I emphasize this all the time. I, I talk about lifelong learning and continuous learning, especially again, if people are going to have 60 year careers, not that it's not important now because it's really important now that students will finish their degree, they'll get their they'll get their diploma uh, and then they'll keep on coming back to the educational trough to drink some more education because they'll need it. They'll need it to stay current in what they're doing. They'll need it to transfer to new jobs or new positions within their organization. Now, some, and there's all kinds of learners, right? Some are very self-motivated and you just point them to YouTube or point them to a, a, an ebook and they will absorb it and they, they will really do a good job. Some people need someone to sh help shepherd them along that path. And, and you know, there's no one right model. It's different people, different points in their career and, and their learning aptitude. And uh, some people are love online. Some people want to be in the classroom so they can interact with the people to their left and their right and the instructor in real time and, you know, uh, the old fashioned way. So I think we're gonna we're gonna accommodate all those things, and uh, and I think we'll figure out where the more valuable things are, where there's enough students, uh, both you know uh, young young students and, and and adult learners, and uh, and are gonna supply enough population to to make it worth everyone's while, and the and some experiments will experiments won't pan out, but I think it's going to become broader. But I I think that the foundation as we know it will still remain. It probably will change a little bit, but we're gonna add so much more to it. And uh, and I think uh, I, I this is me being an optimist. I think there's so much opportunity 
for rethinking the way we do education because people will tell you, no, it's a hundred year old model, 200 year old model. And uh, and I don't want to overdo it. I don't want to, you know, throw the baby out with the bathwater, so to speak. But I think there's a, it's an opportunity to rethink things. And I think especially if, if uh, the dislocation and employment is going to be more profound than some people want to give it credit for, there's going to be huge demand, huge demand for ed creative educational services. And right now, if you ask uh, people who might be affected or might know of someone who's affected, they ask, where where do you think you're going to get that education from? The number one answer is from their current employer, not from a, not from a traditional education provider. That bothers me that people say that. Now, the current employer might be cheaper, so I get it, but that's just a question of price, not a question of one provider versus the other. So I would like people to say more often, hey, you know what, the school I, I went to or the school I hope to go to or the school down the street, uh, and uh, in addition to my company, not instead of my company. And so, I, again, I think there's an opportunity to rethink a lot of things here. It's a lot. It's uh, it's like um, microeducation kind of right, like where you're kind of just picking and choosing kind of certain skills. So you have a certain skills skill set yourself and now you're just trying to enhance yourself, which is at, to, at the very beginning of our conversation when we're talking about AI disruption. If you aren't constantly trying to improve yourself, learn new things, there is a chance you'll get left in the dust. Right, that's right. and you know, and Tony, just in terms of business models, and I'm going to compare it to the cloud. Uh, you know, the old-fashioned model used to be when you acquired software, is you paid a huge fee up front, and then you paid a smaller fee uh, over the course of uh, the life of the software for support. And then the the uh, cloud model is no, you you pay me a monthly fee. It's the same monthly fee unless there's a price increase, and it's a very smooth uh, cash flow as opposed to this big burst up front and and the small dollars in the future. And I think that a university, and not instead of, but in addition to, they can have the traditional model they've always had, but they could also have a subscription model. And again, I don't know what the economics are, but it's just a concept. It's like, you know what? I know I'm going to need education for the rest of my productive life. Why don't I pay you a subscription fee as opposed to, uh, uh, or in addition to all this stuff up front? And every time I need something, I can come back and I don't have to think about this huge fortune of a degree I need to invest in because I've already paid, uh, I have this regular subscription going because you're going to be constantly consuming education and you're my number one choice of a provider. Steve, I thoroughly enjoyed this conversation just as i thoroughly enjoyed our conversation uh, 13 years ago and we, we spoke a little bit here and there but it's been a while since we last caught up but uh i appreciate you taking the time out and chatting with us today no oh, thank you very much i, I enjoyed it. of course i enjoyed the topic and i enjoy speaking with you it's a, a double header we'll do it again in the future okay thanks <laughs> <laughs>